For me, it's really incredibly clear that we come from the ocean and we are the ocean. We are part of nature. We will not survive if nature doesn't survive. Welcome to this week's show, and I'm really pleased to have my good friend Deanna Cohen here, the co-founder of the Plastic Pollutions Coalition. The great thing about the kind of work that I do is I get to be around people like Deanna. She inspires me, and we're friends, so it's great to spend this time with you. In this program, we're talking to a lot of different kinds of people, and we all are recognizing that the fate of the Earth and the fate of people are the same. And you have taken on a big challenge in your work with plastic, and we want to get to that. But before we do it, what's your story? I grew up in Los Angeles, California, so Southern California in the United States, and my parents loved the ocean. And ever since I was a little kid, I remember getting the opportunity to go visit the Pacific Ocean with them many times to Santa Monica or to Venice or Malibu, different beaches in Southern California. I've always been completely in awe of the ocean. I don't actually think we live on a land planet. I think we live on an ocean well, planet. That's right, yeah. And I was a little accident prone as a kid. So when I think about cutting myself or stubbing my toe or nicking myself, et cetera, when I think about bleeding, when I think about crying, uh, when I think about our tears, our blood, you know, as an adult, when I got to be present for the birth of my niece, it's so clear to me that our bodies and the fluids in our body are salt have salt in them mm, and mm. taste salty and are mm. salty and we create new human beings yeah. in a kind of salty spaceship yeah. inside of our bodies yeah, yeah. so so for, for me it's really incredibly clear that we come from the ocean and we are the ocean the ocean and being in the ocean and being in the sea is a place where i feel very comfortable it feels familiar and not foreign to me, so I have a very strong connection to the ocean and love the ocean, and can talk about it a lot longer if you want me to. <laughs> no, you've done a good job, and I, you know, I like that. And you know, I, I kind of had an epiphany recently. You know, when they're talking about getting people to Mars or to the Moon or any other place, they're always talking about how you have to overcome all the things that the Earth provides us. You know, it provides us with this perfect gravity that keeps our body in order. It, it shields us from cosmic radiation because of the electromagnetic fields around the Earth work. The ocean itself, as you pointed out, we're salty. Life came out of the ocean and we still carry that signature in our blood. Our blood is the same salinity as the ocean a long time ago. And it, the epiphany or the thing that really got through to me recently was it's not so much that the Earth is a great place to be and that we have to think about those conditions when we go elsewhere. It's more that we are part of the Earth ocean system. I mean, we, we are like so directly linked to it and a product of it that the, you can't really find a distinction between the two. There's no separation. There's no, I know, and it, it sounds sort of a little bit dumb for me to say it this way, but it really got through to me that it's not so much finding the conditions like Earth where we can go, it's more like we are Earth. We're, we're, we're part of it, we're an expression of it, and that's how our evolution got us here. And you and I met, I think it was about 10 years ago, on the famous Mission Blue. It was a Ted Cruz in the Galapagos. We both gave TED Talks. I'd never met you before that, and you were gangbusters ready to tackle and solve the plastic in the ocean problem. So you, you grew up excited about the ocean, but you didn't go from that into advocacy work on pollution in the ocean. You no. had an interim period. What happened there? Yeah, I mean, growing up, I, was, I did a lot of uh, body surfing. And, uh, and when I got to be about, I think when I was about 25, I took a PADI course and became a certified diver. 
and I would say my third open water dive was at the Cod Hole on the Outer Great Barrier Reef in Australia, and that was more about 30 years ago, wow. which was an incredible time to get to go to the Outer Great Barrier Reef. Yeah. But along the course of that time, I, originally in university, I was a biology major, and that's a, a slightly separate but tendential story in that when I was in junior high school, my mom was diagnosed with breast cancer, and when I was in high school, she died. And she died of a type of breast cancer that at the time they said was estrogen receptive. Uh, we now know that breast cancer is estrogen receptive. And interestingly, the chemicals, the plasticizing chemicals that are used to make plastics are estrogenic. When something's estrogen receptive, it means that if the cancer is estrogen receptive and you're exposed to estrogen or synthetic estrogens, it triggers or feeds the cancer. Okay. That would be the easiest way to yeah, explain yeah. it. Originally, I was a biology major in mm -hmm. college, and this is before I knew anything about plastic or the chemicals in plastic. So this is just was the course of my life. My intention at the time was to study medicine and do preventative cancer research. And at the same time, I had always been drawing and I'd been an artist. I, I consider myself an artist since I was a really young child. So very interested in both nature and the natural world and science and biology, but also equally interested in drawing and art, rendering things and communicating things and using visual images to do that. I initially started out as a biology major. At some point, I tried to dual major in science and art. It was not possible. And I thought at the time that I was making a decision which was a cop-out, which in retrospect I think was not at all. I was following a very natural kind of internal um, heart course or rudder that I had. But I decided to change to studying art. Mm. And I began making artwork and that was mainly focused around painting. And I began to make collage pieces at first using brown paper bags that I was cutting up and sewing back together, which came from the market and was part of that whole paper or plastic thing that right. was going on in the, that began in the late 70s, early 80s. Did it start um, that long ago? Yeah, it did. Huh. And it's interesting because plastic bags really arrived on the scene at markets with the idea and they were sold to us in that we were saving a tree. By choosing a plastic bag, that. you were saving a tree, which I think is interesting. Um, and so I began to make work out of plastic bags that I was cutting up and sewing back together, making two-dimensional pieces. So really thinking of them as paintings, mm. but using a needle, beginning to use a needle and thread as a drawing element in the pieces. And the pieces started getting bigger and bigger. And they started coming out of the frames and I stopped stretching <laughs> them over things. And I realized I could make them any shape I wanted to. And I realized that they could be multi-dimensional and I could make sculptural pieces. And I literally realized that I was only limited by my own imagination. So I began to pursue that and it's now 30 years later I've been making artwork out of plastic bags that I cut up and sew back together and along the course in making that artwork I became a certified diver mm -hmm. and I continued to see more and more plastic in the ocean, in the Pacific Ocean, in the Mediterranean. You know, for years I would just grab it when I'd be in the water, either diving or snorkeling or swimming or then learning to surf. I started surfing, longboarding when I was about 30 and gathering it, tying it onto my bikini, tying it onto my bathing suit, coming out, looking for a garbage bin, trying to figure out where I could throw it out. Can I recycle it? Can I throw it away? And so I, this started becoming just a regular habit mm -hmm. of mine. In about 2007, 2008, I started hearing this wonderful guy, Captain Charles Moore, who was just yelling as loud as he could that there was a problem happening in the middle of the Pacific Ocean and nobody knew about it yet. But we were basically 
developing an island of plastic pollution or trash in the mm -hmm. middle of the ocean. And I thought, oh my God, what is this crazy man talking about? Mm. But I kept continually seeing more and more plastic in the ocean. And so I got in touch with him and I started talking to him. How did you hear his message? Was it an article? Was it a news TV show? Was it a medium? You know what, person? that is a great question. I don't know. Okay. I think that he was so alarmed, he literally was doing anything, anything. in his power and you to try and get the message paths. out, okay. and I heard it. Yeah, yeah and I've um, met him, and I know he sort of raised the alarm about he really uh, did. accumulation he, of plastic out there. He yeah. really did, and he's been a tremendous mentor. By the time we met, in the Galapagos Islands. And uh, I think my invitation to give a TED talk on the boat was very much an afterthought by the TED Wish Prize directors. You know, I think they invited me a week before I was leaving to come on the boat to give that talk. And I prepared myself and said I would be happy to. But I found that after I spoke about it, you and so many other people that I was really meeting for the first time began to reference it or include it yeah. in the talks that you gave True. and yeah. also approached me afterwards and said this is something I've been thinking about for a book that I'm working on. Callum Roberts said that and I'm now thinking I'm going to include a chapter about the impact of plastic yeah. in the ocean yeah. in my new book. I brought it up at Davos I think that next year as a topic which I might not have had we not had conversations and I heard it laid out a little bit better. Than, than, as you did. I mean, I, I always knew there was a problem, and that's one of the reasons I'm doing what I do today is I started seeing a lot of garbage on the seafloor from deep-sea submersibles, but wow. I didn't, hadn't realized how bad it had gotten until... Well, I have to say that when you gave your talk in the Galapagos and you mentioned going down, taking turns between you and Dr. Sylvia Earle mm -hmm. in the one human submersible, right. and then seeing plastic garbage on the floor of the Sea of Japan, I was sitting in the audience basically with tears running down my face mm -hmm. because I thought, I'm sitting here with a bunch of the top scientists in the world who are aware of all these different issues that are impacting the ocean. This is something that people have been noticing for a certain amount of time. And here we are. Why hasn't anything been done about it? How do we wake people up? Part of why we created and I co-founded Plastic Pollution Coalition, there are two reasons. One, I don't think any sane person should start yet a new organization or NGO if you don't need to. But we really saw a need to figure out how to bring together all different kinds of groups and businesses that were looking at different aspects of this problem and give them a unified language that they could use, which is not to call this stuff marine debris or litter, rubbish, waste, garbage, but to actually, when we're talking about plastic, to call it plastic and to call it plastic pollution. And we really felt that that was an important mm -hmm. first step that we needed to take. And then the next step was how do we communicate to people and message out this idea to, to, to empower us to refuse to use single-use plastic? And I think I should just clarify, but you already know this, Greg. I mean, I'm not anti-plastic. I understand the value yeah. of plastic. And we're sitting in a room right now where a lot of the technology that we're using, et cetera, is yeah. made from plastic. And it's, it's a highly useful material. I think the problem is, and I don't know exactly when this happened, was when the petrochemical industry and industry in general decided it was a good idea to design things with intended obsolescence for single use out of it. And I think that's when we made the deal with the devil, which is taking a valuable material but using it in a totally irresponsible way.
and that that's really I think where we find that's a really that's now. a really really insightful way of describing it the way you just said that at some point I'm not sure when it was we took this material which I believe it was first created in like 1909 I think I recall bacolite yeah there was, cellulose and yeah. it was like wow and it comes from oil as you just pointed out which most people don't know so it comes from an organic substance and inexpensive to make, incredibly diverse in terms of the kind of products you can make from it. Strong, weak, thin, heavy, you know, it just had all these uses. And fantastic for a fence post or a bed frame or a window frame. There was a moment that you said that we started to use it with designed obsolescence. Mm -hmm. In other words, we would use it for a brief period of time and then throw it away. And they didn't think about the throw it away part, did they? Well, I, I, I'm not sure that th whoever they is didn't think about it. But I think what happened is there's some language and terminology that we have to poke holes in a little bit. You know, we have to reveal the truth about them. Is it really convenient to buy all of our food and beverages packaged in single-use plastic containers? Is that actually convenient? Or is that a kind of new definition of convenience that's been marketed, heavily marketed and sold to us, sold to the public. And what's the truth of that? Isn't the truth actually that big oil and the petrochemical industry found a way to use a waste product that comes from processing petroleum and by adding plasticizing chemicals like phthalates and bisphenols to it, they could make it supple, malleable, rigid, you know, et cetera and create all these different packaging or materials. So the, so the basic stuff that makes plastic was originally a waste product yes. from making gasoline or diesel fuel? Yeah, from okay. processing what petroleum. Was so it was being thrown away? It or? was probably being buried in big drums or dumped in the ocean okay. in big drums. It was okay. a waste product that, I didn't that, know that. companies okay. had all to right. figure out how all to right. remediate it, oh, basically, see. what to do with it right. afterwards. So. Plastic is really genius in a way. If you can just add some chemicals to it that make it transparent or translucent, and suddenly you can use it to sell people milk and beverages, and you can make things really rubbery and make all these toys for children yeah. out of it by heavily phthalating it and make it behave like rubber. You can do all these different things. It's not remarkable material. It's just remarkable. And you can also make it out of other carbon sources. It doesn't have to be made from byproducts of processing petroleum. You can make it from hemp, bulrush, corn, corn husk, sugar, sugarcane, potatoes, potato peels. I mean, there are many, many grasses. There are many things you can make okay. plastic I out of. I didn't know that either. Yeah. Okay. All right. You just can switch out the carbon source. Right. Okay. So as we watch oh. this global movement away from a dependence on fossil fuels, mm -hmm. I also think we're going to see more and more plastic options that are not made with petroleum based carbon source for the plastic. Do they have different biodegradable characteristics if they're not made from petroleum? Is, is that where the... This is where the fact that I'm not a scientist okay, okay, yeah, doesn't right, allow right. me to answer that perfectly. We have been part of a report that is called the Better Alternatives Now list, which was generated by uh, eight or 10 different NGOs. Uh, including the lead NGO on it was the Five Dryers Institute and Upstream Policy. Okay. And we have been part of that, and we are working on a third iteration of it that will be focused okay. on Southeast That's Asia. Okay, well. But that also helps define oxybiodegradables, 
is something actually biodegradable? Is it actually organic? Does it break down? Is it compostable? Because Europe has different standards than the United States does. And it's a lot to decipher all of this right. different Right, no, coding. it is very complex. And I want to come back to that. Mm -hmm. But first I want to zero in on this time during the 20th century when we came up with this material and started using it in a way that was uh, temporary and then to be thrown away. Most of it, I believe, ends up in the ocean. Isn't that what the science says now? That we normally say that it ends up in the ocean and waterways and the environment. Okay. And the reason I say environment is because I'm including landfills, which are just holes that we dig in the environment, and I'm also including all of these different euphemistic waste to energy, pyrolysis, incineration, et cetera, because uh, that's really just burning it Right. Different forms of burning or incineration, and it creates particulate pollution. And you put, and that goes into the atmosphere. So it's either in the atmosphere, in the land, or in the water systems. I like to think about the ocean now as starting in the clouds, yeah. <laughs> going down in rain through the land, over the mountains, down rivers, and into the salty part. Yeah. <laughs> Let's call the, the, the big areas the salty part of the ocean. Yeah. Then the ocean evaporates up into the clouds and, and the ocean moves back over the land and comes back down. I see it as one big system. Now. It is. And not ocean here and fresh water there. It's really one system. So It is. So the plastic is there. An awareness came about that it's not going away and it just started to build up and build up. And uh, you struck out, started ringing the alarm and began to, okay, well, you know, what are we going to do about it? Um, have I got the narrative about right? Yeah, the narrative's right. <laughs> well, there's actually something, though, that I've really come to understand better related to what you're talking about, which is the that the ocean is a whole system. Like, yeah. our planet is a whole ocean system. You know, the ocean creates every second breath that we take. The organisms that live in the ocean are creating oxygen for us. All of these different things right, that make right. us so heavily dependent and our existence Right. deeply interconnected right. with the ocean, not a separate thing. But um, something that I've only really come to to understand the bigger picture of this issue in the last couple years is that our use of plastic and the whole system that supports using plastic and single-use plastic and the way that we use the material is toxic and disproportionately impacts people in lower-income communities from extraction and war and, and use of resources through manufacturing, through transport along the whole way, through where people purchase things and how they use them and buy them and prepare food for their families and store it, et cetera. And then it's instantly a waste management issue. So it's an end of life problem, oftentimes, again, incinerated or ending up in a landfill or some kind of processing plant, which is generally based in a lower income community mm -hmm. and seeing higher levels of asthma and all kinds of health problems in these places from the incineration or the burning. And so back to that idea that there's a kind of convenience or that we are using a cheap or inexpensive material, plastic is not an inexpensive material. But all of the true costs to human health and animal health and waterways and the ocean and lakes and the environment have been externalized right. and they have been put out onto the public. You're absolutely correct. And just to clarify for, for listeners, this is like one of the holy grails of, of conservation is that the world operates on economic thinking that really is quite simple. It's how much it costs to buy something or make something and what you can sell it for. 
it does not have any extended measurement of the impact of that activity on the environment and then what the changed environment costs us humans in terms of health, regeneration, all those, you call them externalities. I'm not an economist, so I can't really speak to it, but it's a tough one, you know, and, and a lot of my work has been geared towards trying to put dollars on the value of nature and the value of when you lose that nature, what's it worth? And unless you can see it in a bank account statement or some tangible way, it's very hard to convince policymakers and the people even to, to understand those externalities. So you're, you're right, the, the cost. But Greg, how do you put a value on clean air? How do you put a value on clean water? How do you put a value on a healthy coral system? You know, on a healthy ocean environment. It could be an American Express ad. It's priceless. <laughs> I mean, it's, yeah. it's beyond yeah. priceless because yeah. it's not well, something that we can really use well, you, well, money to recreate well, you can, once I mean, we there, damaged there's, it. There's a lot of exercises where you, you can actually do things like uh, the Seattle water system is based on a vast uh, forest that I believe that the county or the city or the state set aside a long time ago as a, as a catch basin for the area and the water comes through this system and then it produces water for the city of Seattle. Now, mm -hmm. if you were to start today and say, okay, I want a big, beautiful, pristine catch basin, you could actually estimate what it would cost to build one or remove everything and create one. So you could, people have done that. They've put billions and billions of dollars. Similarly, off the coast of Galveston, Texas, someone started looking at the sand dunes and the, and the banks and said, hey, these are really great protection against the hurricane waves, and thank God we have them. And oh, what, what if we didn't have them? How much would it cost to build an artificial barrier out here? And then you can put a price on that natural dune because you need it. If you don't have that barrier, those hurricane waves in the Gulf of Mexico, which are quite common, would come in and sweep across the very low-lying state of Texas and take down homes and everything. So there's a real functional relationship there. And you can say it would cost $10 billion to make 20 miles of dunes. And I'm making this up. Right. And then you can put a price on it. But Look at the overdevelopment in yeah. Miami and southern Florida and the yeah. Miami Keys, where they've removed all of these natural mangrove systems that I'm fairly certain just based on my limited scientific knowledge would help quite a bit oh, you're, you're, protect the coastline when you have yeah. uh, a hurricane. Well, they would, and I've, I've actually done some research myself. I went in and studied the effects of the Boxing Day tsunami that hit Indonesia and Thailand many years ago. We went in after the tsunami and did a study of where there were healthy reef systems. There was less damage on shore because the tsunami got the stuff and knocked out of it before it hit the land. The problem is that these benefits, these values that nature can give us, they don't turn up in a four-year election cycle. Yeah. And they don't turn up in a quarterly report of a company or even the town budget of 12 months. And that's where we run into problems. They turn up on a ledger sheets that they actually exist. There's a whole scientific community that makes ledger sheets that value nature and then countries are supposed to pay attention to them. I can point to a number of places where these have been compiled, but then when it comes down to the day you vote or the day you spend your dollar or the day you pay your taxes, nobody looks at that ledger sheet. Right, <laughs> they're, right. they're looking at their needs. So this is a fundamental value system problem that we have in our society is what we value and how we spend that value. And certainly the externalities of having the convenience of plastic is, is a very, very complex one. And for example, just to put it, put it in real terms, yeah. let, let's just do a little like sure. an Einstein thought experiment. Okay. One of the things that I know you don't like, and that's a mild word, is plastic water bottles. 
right. there are none in this room. I can assure you of that. Awesome. Thank you. <laughs> I, I put the all the, the, the five bell alarm out to the to the studio and said, I've got someone coming. I don't want to see any plastic water bottles here. You spend a dollar ninety nine or a dollar whatever it costs you to buy that bottle of water. You use it for a couple of minutes until it's done. Then it goes into a trash can or a recycle bin if you're lucky. And then what happens? What happens to it? Well, it depends. It depends yeah. where you are in um, in the states. It depends where you, you give us a couple scenarios for the listeners who yeah. you know. Who, well, who, it depends where you are. I mean, there are cities that do have recycling infrastructure set up, and they do have a system to collect. Not everything that people use that's packaged in plastic, but some of it. Okay. Um, unfortunately, there are only a couple kinds of plastic out of those seven different kinds that have value, um, but Generally, the materials that plastic bottles, water bottles are made from, do have value. Okay. One would hope that those are collected. Value and that they can re be recycled and you make something else out of them. Yeah, but I mean, yeah. I'm, so, sorry, I'm going to segue. I'm much more interested in buying something in a glass bottle and imagining that that glass bottle could be recollected, sterilized, and refilled. Right. Which, in my personal opinion, is less energy than manufacturing a new plastic bottle. Now, maybe someone from Coca-Cola would argue that with me. Okay. Well, what I'm interested in is I'm, like a worst case, best case scenario is for the person who, get, who drinks a bottle of water. Best case they can possibly imagine is that it gets into a recycle bin and it's the kind of plastic that can be recycled that has some value and it's used for something else. That's the best case, I'm, I'm guessing. And the yeah, worst I mean, I don't really see that as a best case scenario, though, for two, twofold. One... It's made with chemicals. Well, the best case it's, is they don't have it in the first place. Well, but I, I mean, it's made yeah. with chemicals that are plasticizing yeah. chemicals that may have leached micro amounts into no, the, I, I into the beverage yeah. Yeah. and may be impacting or uh, affecting your health as the consumer, the person who's drinking yeah. out of that. That's one. Two, in the United States, our recycling rates were already pretty shabby. Yeah. Uh, I think as of 2014, it was less than 9% of all of the plastic that we use in the U.S. is recycled. And I say recycled like this because it's actually downcycled or turned into something lesser. Uh, it's not necessarily turned into the same thing again. Right. Right. And that has to do with the polymer chain. I'm not a scientist, but weakening. And so you need, you can only have I, up to 30% recycled material and the rest needs to be virgin, etc. Right. Also think about how much energy and the resources it takes to manufacture one plastic water right. bottle. I, I know all that. We're going to get to that. Okay. So stay with me here because okay. I'm, I'm trying to get somewhere that I think you, you want to go. Okay. But, but I'm trying to get to the externalities. So, right. right. But So hold on. Let yeah. me just stick with okay. what, where I was for a second. So Jan Dell, who's a chemical engineer, uh, worked with us and put out a report last year. And based on the China sword, which is China declaring that they're no longer going to take our recycling, materials. What we were about to see is to see that by the end of 2018, our recycling rates in the U.S. drop into the 4%, like 4.6 or 4.4%. And at the current rate we're going by the end of next year, so by the end of, oh, sorry, by the end of this year, 2019, to see that rate drop further to 2.6%. So our recycling rates in the U.S., are pathetic. And what I always say to people, because they're like, well, can't you recycle this? Recycling is a great idea, okay? Yeah. And I don't want to dissuade people. If you live in a community where you have a recycling bin, say a little prayer, 
and put that thing in the bin and cross your fingers and light a candle. And that's what I do, right? Okay. But also try not to buy everything packaged in it just in case nothing's really happening there. Right. Just in case. And the whole thing about recycling is it's a nice idea, but how do things get back there? Right. So I'm going to give you an example. In Asia, there's a big problem with these single-use sachet packages that are sold on these rolls to people. What's a sachet? It's at. kind of like <clears throat> an amalgam. It's made with plastic, paper, and foil usually. Oh, and yeah, it has yeah, a, yeah, like yeah. a single serving of... Um, like tea or something. Well, or mm. dishwashing liquid oh, yeah, or yeah. shampoo oh, or things, something yeah, like yeah. that. And they sell them on these big rolls. Um, and they're very convenient. I've talked to friends who are Indonesian who like them because they don't have to carry products with them when they travel. They can just buy a couple of these if they need them and use them while they're traveling and they ha don't have to carry right. larger containers. This is a nice idea, except what we're seeing at beach cleanups in Manila and on Freedom Island uh, in Indonesia is that the top plastic pollution that's washing up on beaches and coming down river tributaries in Southeast Asia are these sachet packets. And they are made by Nestle's and Unilever and I have talked to the folks from Unilever about it, and they very proudly told me that they've opened a new recycling plant for the sachet packets in Jakarta. And I said, oh really, how does that work if you've got thousands of islands in Indonesia? How do you get those packets to come back to your recycling uh, plant? And what kind of recycling is it? Is it chemical recycling? And it turns out it is some kind of chemical recycling. They weren't super clear with me about it. But, okay. Uh, okay. So what I'm just saying to you is it's all a really nice idea. Yeah. But I mean, I don't buy cliff bars or granola bars. You know why? Because I don't care how badly I need a little bite of something when I'm on the go. Right. I'll eat an apple. I'll eat a banana. But I don't need to buy and open something that's coming in its own little plastic right. mylar foil amalgam container. Because do you, do you I don't want to contribute. Do you to see that. a lot of these sachet things in the ocean? Do they end up yes. floating around? Yeah. Do, what What are the top items that that end up at beach cleanups? Yeah. Well, surprisingly, a lot of people are not aware of this, and as an ex-smoker, I'm more finely aware of it. But cigarette butts oh, are one of the number was. one things that are found at beach cleanups because the filters are made out of plastic, and most people don't know that. And I'm sure smokers. Well, two things. One. It's kind of horrific to realize that you're pulling a hot flame and tobacco. You're pulling smoke through a plastic filter into your lungs. That's pretty gross right. right there. But then people make this association, and I think it really has to do with advertising, that cigarettes are something somehow natural or, you know, you're, you're out in nature and you're thinking it's really been sold to us through advertising right. and the Marlboro Man and all of this stuff, and you put it out on Gosh, the ground. I hope we'd be past that by now, the well, Marlboro but, Man stuff. But, but I'm just saying, yeah, you, know, yeah, you put yeah. it out on the ground and you imagine it's just paper and it's right. going back to the earth, but it's not. It's plastic and it will last for a long time. So that's one of the things that we find. Uh, we find a lot of bottle caps, um, plastic bottles, a lot of things that people use every day, toothbrushes, uh, barrettes, um, different kinds of little clips and things like that, um, plastic kind of pinchers that people use for laundry, uh, plastic bags, plastic okay. cups. In Asia, I've seen a lot of these very thin yeah. plastic cups. You, I with took the, a picture once in Asia, did. in you Indonesia did. that you put on your website. Yeah, yeah, you did. I think you took it in Raja Ampat. I took it in Raja Ampat, yeah. yeah. 
um, you know, which is considered an unbelievably pristine environment. Uh, and yet you saw that, or, or you also had sent me an image of a chewed plastic bag that had little nibble bite marks mm -hmm. all over it. So it's not pristine. But the other thing too is that you know plastic and plastic pollution, once it gets into waterways and into the environment, knows no boundaries. And I don't believe that it's the responsibility of any one country, but I do think that if you have a company and you are a master brander, which many of these companies are, and you've got your logo all over everything, it's perfectly fine for us all to turn around and say, hey, these belong to you. Therefore, this packaging is your responsibility. So, take, so I'd really like to see policy like to, and legislation. It would that, take responsibility for a product through its end life. Of life. End, of, End life. of life through its So that we stop functioning in this cradle to grave model, which doesn't work and is not sustainable, and we work on we focus on a cradle to cradle model. And another thing I wanted to say earlier when you were talking about nature, we are part of nature. We will not survive if nature doesn't survive. I mean, I believe that the planet will survive, and ideally in some fashion, nature will survive and doesn't need us. Look at the amount of damage we've done in such a short yeah. time period. No, nature will survive, it'll just be different. <laughs> yes, it will be different, it will be different. It will be without us. It might be more beautiful, frankly, I don't know. Yeah, that idea of companies taking responsibility, you called it for end of life or the whole cycle of the material on Earth, right, until it gets back to what it was when the company started to make it or change it, right? I've heard there's quite a bit of discussion about this in the battery market when electric cars, and right. there's a big battery component to these cars, like a Tesla has, I think it's about a thousand pounds or maybe a little bit more. Mm -hmm. And I believe, I don't have it here in front of me, but there's, that there's policy being developed that the manufacturer has to pay attention to that battery after the car is done because of the the pollution waste. Yeah, uh, I think in that and, same way that, are, that are the manufacturers should yeah. be responsible for the battery and the different materials That's that they're I'm, using to make their product. Is, um, are there other examples? Uh, do you know of any that where we... Well, I, I've seen them when it comes to food stuff personally. And again, mm -hmm. I comment the issue of plastic pollution, really looking at where are all of the key points that we can help bring about source reduction. I don't want to focus on just cleanup. If we're focused on cleanup or going out to the Pacific Ocean to clean something up, it's too late. Right. When it comes to sourcing, you know, so we can get away from this repetitive Siphius's rock going up and down the hill, are there any ways that we are finding strategies to not introduce plastic into our world? Yes. One of the big ways that I'm seeing change come about is through education. And I'm watching a lot of young people drive this, which I think is absolutely remarkable. And that is young people. Haven't they always been the ones to drive movements and change? Well, I mean, you know, <laughs> three years later, I mean, they're, they're the grown-ups who are voting. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, I'm seeing a lot of that be driven by young people and youth today who get it right away and yeah, understand. They do, don't they? They understand simple things. They understand that a turtle might mistaken a plastic bag for a jellyfish mm. and ingest that. Mm. And we're finding, originally we were finding plastic in 78% of turtle necropsies, but now I think 100% of turtles have some form of plastic in their digestive, digestive mm. tract. Um, or that a turtle might accidentally swallow or ingest a plastic straw or accidentally end up with one stuck in its nose mm. that has to be removed by scientists and become a poster child to help people understand that you might not need a plastic straw for every beverage that you're gonna have. In fact, 
they're somewhat ridiculous when you really think about it that way. So we've watched a great youth movement that's been developing. Mm -hmm. um, we've also seen companies that offer like a fresh cold pressed juice or are manufacturing or making almond milk um, or are doing uh, dairy products or milks or yogurts and sell them in glass bottles or glass jars or containers where you pay a deposit. And they've set up a more localized deposit system with local markets or local farmers markets where you have a delivery system. You're paying for that by paying into the deposit and it, you are returning those containers afterwards. I am a big fan of those. I support them whenever I need products like mm -hmm. that. And I think it also develops and creates a kind of customer loyalty also nationally and internationally, we're seeing a number of refill shops open up. So shops that have what we saw also in the 60s and 70s at health food stores, which was a kind of bulk bin where you could come with your own bags or glass jars or containers and fill those up, weigh them before, weigh them afterwards, and just buy the product and use your own containers. Mm. So we're seeing a really interesting move, move with that. And then also different models where they're either replacing the material so it's not plastic with something made from seaweed or algae um, that is 100% non-toxic and has the same kind of qualities that we associate with plastic so can be used that way, um, as well as incentivizing people bringing their own cup or their own reusable bottle or a kind of bento box or lunch container. I mean, I carry in my purse my bamboo utensils with me. I've got some you've given me over the, over time, yeah. Yeah, and uh, and my stainless steel straw, and I usually bring some extra we'll, ones. We'll so. make sure that we have a link to your website and maybe you know some of these details. Uh, sure. Because when this is aired, I'm sure people are going to want to know. And keep going. Keep. I want, yeah. I want people so, to hear what they can do. The ones yeah, and so we've also worked, for example, with different coalition members. So we worked with Post Landfall Action Network, which was started by students at the University of New Hampshire to create a campus plastic reduction guide that's free, that people can download online and take to their own university or high school or middle school and begin to create a group of people and an engagement with the school to look at how they can measurably reduce their plastic footprint. So that's very exciting. We also worked with Made Safe, which is a certification organization that looks for uh, and certifies, does independent testing of products to make sure that they don't have toxic chemicals in them. We worked with them to create a healthy baby guide, mm -hmm. which for the most part is a plastic-free baby guide. And again, that's free and people can just download it online. So we're really looking at ways to share the best things that we discover every day or that different coalition members are working on um, and highlight those things and make them accessible and available and, and provide that information and guides to people so that they can make better choices. I think you're absolutely right. I think that you know getting people to vote with their lifestyle and with their purchases will help change systems. But you know one thing I've noticed is there's an opportunity cost to this and there's another economic term I'm using rather freely, not being an economist, and that is that I find that in my communications, Deanna, when I'm giving talks, I always get very enthusiastic people that want to help, want to, well, what can I do? I get questions from the audience, and they, they say, I, I recycle everything, and I won't use plastic bags. I find there's a certain group that tends to think that's enough. Mm -hmm. They feel like they've done their bit, mm -hmm. and now they can relax. My message out to people always is, yes, keep doing that, but the problem we have is so vast, so far beyond 
that. Now I'm talking about the larger ocean health issues. Those of us that live, fortunate enough to live in Southern California here, we should definitely make those kind of tough choices, but we can't let people off the hook either. They gotta keep going. Have you noticed that with people that they tend to let themselves off the hook if they do a couple things at home and that's it? I have noticed that, but I also think, and I find that when I, I give talks or when I participate in panel discussions or when we show short films and talk with people, people wanna know what they can do. Yeah. And they'd like you to tell them Yeah. to help simplify it. But at the same time, I think it's important for people to start somewhere and more importantly than maybe supporting things uh, financially, you know, supporting them monetarily, is how do you help communicate that there's, this is a big problem to people, but at the same time also empower them to feel that they can help make a difference and feel a kind of heart connection or heart engagement to the issue. And I think that plastic is a more tangible uh, plastic pollution specifically, and how to reduce one's own plastic footprint, but then expand that into your sphere. So how you take care of your family, if your kids are in school, what's happening at their school. Are, oh, you, okay. are, now, you, a, are you a business this is, owner? This is interesting. Maybe this is what you've been trying to tell me all these years. How, how, you, <laughs> how you relate to this issue can be an indicator for the rest of your life and your impact on the planet. I mean, if you yeah. get your plastic sorted, then maybe you'll follow on and make sure your energy consumption is correct and that you're... Well, but it's all, yeah. it's all, it's all interconnected. Yeah. So when you talk about, like, I feel overwhelmed. I've had people approach me after I've spoken and said, we need your help to communicate ocean acidification and you're communicating this so well can you help us and I don't really know I'm like that's not my area of uh, of focus it's certainly not my area of expertise to say you should do a B and C but aren't these things interconnected so if we're looking at how to move away from our dependence on fossil fuels if we're looking at how to stave off or address climate change part of that is our dependence on fossil fuels and our dependence on these different carbon sources. So if we begin to reduce our personal plastic footprint, and like I said, expand that into our family, our school, our neighbors, our friends, our place of work, our business, if we're a business owner, if we're involved in politics, you know, at the local level or the state level or a federal level or internationally, can we expand yeah. it into that? It, yeah. well, you know, it, it grows exponentially but people have to understand it first it, in order it, to it, you know, care. It, it does about seem it. like the time has come for plastic. Oh, you know, yeah. You know, 10 years ago when I first met you, I, very few people were thinking about it. Today, there are various governments that are organizing their agenda relative to the ocean around plastic, yeah. Canada being one. Oceans have finally risen to the top of many public policy and agendas and treaties in the UN. And now that people are aware of the ocean and the problems, they want to do something. Now they're creating sort of action lists. You know, what do we do now? And plastic tends to rise quite high on all those lists. Because which it's is, tangible. Because you can see it, it's tangible, and right. it's, it gives you somewhere to go. And I heard of an initiative that reacts to the fact that most of the plastic is coming out of Asian rivers now, and that somebody had some ideas about putting some booms around the mouth of the river so that you catch the plastic before mm -hmm. it ends up in the ocean and gets dispersed where it's harder to 
collect? Does that make any sense to you? Have you Greg, heard about do that? you remember coming to our TEDx Great Pacific Garbage Patch yeah, in I 2010? Do. So I don't know if you remember, a, a very intelligent, charismatic woman got up and spoke named Suja Lowenthal, who w at the time was the vice mayor of the city of Long Beach. And she explained in her talk that the city of Long Beach spends $2 million a year with booms and cranes to try and catch all of the plastic pollution that's coming down the mouth of the LA River. And she talked about how she would much rather spend that money on schools and fire department and police right. and infrastructure for the city okay. uh, than this plastic garbage. Right. And she was angry about yeah. needing to spend this yeah. kind of money and resources on that and the different machinery that they needed to rent and own and purchase to yeah. try and keep up with it. Putting booms or something to catch things at river mouths or higher upstream on rivers is not a new concept. Right. And there are a number of different scientific research teams and businesses that are launching different kinds of products, different Bo kinds these of- boomy things, bo okay. Boom things that are collectors. And I do think that it's smarter to go upstream Right. You know, then to try and go out to the middle of the ocean. Yeah. I do. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, we'll need all of the above. Yeah, because there are efforts going out to the middle of the ocean as well. Yes, yeah. there are. And they are part of our coalition. The ocean cleanup is part of our coalition. They're now bringing that back in because part of the device broke and they have to continue to uh, uh, refine some of the machinery. But much less expensive to take a look at preventing the problem in the first place. Right. How do we stop? creating and manufacturing so many billions of tons of this stuff. It's a little bit like, do you want to keep working on cures for cancer? Or if there are known carcinogens, do you want to work on reducing exposure to those carcinogens in the first place and prevent it? I'm a big fan of prevention. Who are some of your heroes, either historically or contemporarily? Well, I've already mentioned some of them, but uh, I'm a big fan of Dr. Sylvia Earle, yeah. her deepness. Her deepness, yeah. The thing I love the most about Sylvia yeah. is that when she's talking to a huge room full of people yeah. and it seems like she might be losing them for a minute, yeah. she just pulls her voice in kind of softer and deeper and uh. everybody's suddenly just in the palm <laughs> of her hand. Um, yeah, she but, does command, yeah. Yeah, mm. she's, she's a remarkable person. Mm -hmm. um, Captain Charles Moore, mm -hmm. love him. I have a number of heroes who are younger than me. Um, one of them is my friend Crystal Ambrose. She founded the Bahamas Plastic Movement, okay. and she's in her 20s. She's a millennial. Okay. Uh, she's a bohemian young woman who is incredibly energetic, thoughtful, and smart, and driven to help teach and empower young people in, in uh, Eleuthera. She's from, she grew up on Grand Eleuthera in the Bahamas and the Caribbean to step up and create change okay. around plastic pollution. So. What's, what's your favorite marine animal? Or Ooh. one of them, one of them, ocean animal. Man, I love octopus. Yeah, me too. Yeah, they're always a winner. Actually, yeah. it might be dolphins. I know I'm gonna sound like every kid that you meet no. who's like, it's no. dolphins. No, that's okay. No, dolphins are no, good. No, no, wait, it's turtles. No, <laughs> dolphins but, are um, good. The thing I love about dolphins is I've seen some footage, some film footage of a dolphin uh, of different dolphins blowing these kind of air bubbles and then spinning them and turning them into um, infinity symbols and figure eights and kind of double helixes. And I, I, I've had to watch them again and again because I'm, I'm fairly certain, and I don't know that I'll 
have the answer to this in my lifetime. They are working on astrophysics and they understand the Schrodinger's cat model better <laughs> than I do. I think that they're really, they're working on physics and understand the physical world. I think that these animals, these sea lions and um, uh, seals and animals that, that appear to be so lumbering, if mm. you see them on land, have evolved these perfectly fine-tuned bodies to exist in these three-dimensional mm. ocean reality environment that they live in. And it's so beautiful and so incredible. And I think they deeply, including octopus, understand a lot of things that we We'll be lucky if we're able to listen quietly enough to them to learn. Before we wind up today, is there anything else you wanted to, to lay down on this, this podcast? Which will... Well, I'm, I wanted to let you know that we launched a beta version of a global plastic reduction toolkit that we've been building. It's um, a tool that came out of some of our working groups, yep. specifically one that was focused on policy and legislation. Okay. Uh, it was identified as something that was necessary. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's great. So that's pretty exciting. All right. And then it's also been interesting to see uh, people around the world stepping up and creating their own versions of plastic-free islands, plastic-free campuses, plastic-free schools, all different kinds of projects. We have moved into a realm where we're doing a, a more direct engagement with uh, industry as well. And we launched a fast food survey for the top 25 fast food companies asking them actually to self-report on how much single-use plastic they're using in their packaging. Okay. So should be interesting this year to see right. some of the results from that. But yeah, we're turning 10. We were co-founded and had our soft launch in the end of 2009. And I met you in the spring of 2010. And I have to say the group of people that we were all together with in the Globagus were quite a remarkable group of people. I felt fortunate and I feel a lot of gratitude towards you and the other people that I met on that trip because I think that we've been able to harness the power of a lot of different um, uh, knowledge and look for interesting ways to collaborate. Yeah. I think um, the intersectionality of all of this stuff is really, really important. Yeah. And I also, I mean, I feel like we've talked about a lot of kind of doom and gloom stuff around the plastic pollution issue. And I want people to realize that the ocean naturally is vomiting this stuff out all yeah. the time and is trying to purge itself of it and get rid of it. The problem is we have to stop ramping up all of our production no. of it and producing more, which is ending up in the ocean. Society is lucky to have somebody like you and your colleagues and your co-founders. I know you're always very generous with people you, that work with you and you're on the bow of the boat out there. You got your binoculars and you're looking hard, squinting at the horizon, trying to find a way forward. We need that. So thank you for all that you do and thanks for coming. Uh, really appreciate it. Thanks everybody. See you next week. <laughs>